he purposely said, you know, if you're ever not feeling into it, I always want to know, like, I don't want you ever performing for me. I don't want to feel that shame of like forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. Um, please always tell me. So we made an agreement really early in our relationship just to be totally transparent about what was going on with us. And that created a lot of relief for me. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Men. This one is very important and very special and unique. I think this is a topic that we don't talk about enough, and it's a very big deal in relationships and in terms of sexuality. So I'm really happy to be covering this, and I'm very curious to hear um, what your experience of listening to it is. So please do reach out um, and let me know what you get from it. So I am joined today by two of my very good friends and some of the bravest women I know. Welcome to the podcast, Dawn and Violet. Thank you for being here. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Dawn is a therapist in training and a Reiki practitioner. And Violet is an expert in love, dating, and relationships. And, um, besides being incredible women of their own volition, they also have something else that's important, which they have in common. And that is they're both survivors of sexual abuse. And that is, um, an incredibly common thing to be in this world, but it's very much not talked about. So what we're going to talk about today on the podcast is their experience, um, in particular, relating with the men in their lives, especially the ones that they've dated romantically, um, and navigating being a survivor, talking about it, being a sexual being, having sexual experiences in the world with that as part of their background, and how interactions with men have gone. Because this is a topic I'm really passionate about, and it's something I really want to have more openly discussed, and especially to have men understand and know about it and know how to be allies with um, women who've been sexual abuse survivors, because I think that that can be an incredibly healing thing. And if you're not familiar with the topic, I think for men, especially it can be intimidating or there, there can be a lot of misunderstanding. So I'm hoping to get a bunch of stuff sort of out in the open so that we can have better relationships, more healing, and just honestly, like better sex lives overall. So who's with me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Okay. So yeah, um, I just want to just start by um, opening it up for you two to talk a little bit about your backgrounds, um, and in particular how this how this topic and how this experience sort of showed up in your early sexual experiences. Because you know, there's a whole range of of ways that that could show up. So, um, Don, why don't you start? All right. Um, so for me, um, it started around, I mean, I think it's always kind of been like an essence, but I think when it, like I started really thinking about sex and having sex, I was in a committed relationship, um, early high school, about 15 years old. 
um, with a, a guy a year older than me. And I think it showed up in like really awkward ways where I was actually pretty like sexually inexperienced, but because of uh, being sexually abused when I was very little around the age of two, um, I always felt kind of like dirty or like, uh, like I had more sexual experience. So it would show like, I really didn't, I didn't want to have sex with my partner, but because I felt like I kind of already had, I kind of, I think I had sex with him too soon because I felt like I, well, I was already kind of, you know, at the time it felt like I was already used good. So why not? Hmm. Yeah. And can you, yeah, kind of just unpack that a little bit, because I think that's, that's really important. What you said about feeling like tainted or feeling like dirty, like you were somehow like bad or wrong because this had happened to you. Yeah. And he had, um, yeah. So I just, so actually what happened in this situation is I actually told this person I had sex and it, and I hadn't, I had never had sex, but because I had already felt like I had so much sexual experience. Um, I don't really know why I made that up. I think at the time it felt like a protection because I wasn't ready to tell him about my sexual history, but I also didn't feel in, um, like innocent. And, um, yeah, there was something about me that really like hated myself, um, because of the experience, because it's just like, I felt, yeah, just so just the dirty, the dirtiness of myself and, um, what had happened to me that I was so uncomfortable at such a young age and hadn't really gone into the work that I have now that felt like a protection instead of telling him the truth. Right. So instead of telling him about the abuse, you told him that you, you weren't a virgin, that you had sex before. Yes. And um, before we go into that, Violet, what was your experience? Yeah, my early sexual experiences in high school, I felt on one hand, like a strong, you know, sexual energy and desire, but on the other hand, a lot of shame and fear around it. And at the time I thought it was just religious, you know, kind of conditioning. So I was really active in my church at the time, but I remember my high school boyfriend, you know, trying to make out with me and trying to touch me. And there would be times when that would be great. And there'd be times where I just would violently push his hands away and he would look at me and be like, wow, like what's wrong? Why are you rejecting me? Like this, this really hurts me. He was actually really good at communicating And I would kind of shame him and I'd be like, no, like, I don't want that. Or why do you always want that? Or, you know, that's like Don said, like, that's dirty. So I I definitely had this weird polarized kind of uh, experience with my sexuality. And just to be clear, so Don, you said that you did remember what had happened to you. So you were aware of it. Violet, were you in the same position? Did you, could you remember at that time that you were you were just starting to have sexual experiences in your teens. Did you remember your past? I didn't. I mean, I always felt kind of awkward and shy around boys and, you know, felt really a lot of anxiety around men and dating and all of that. But I didn't actually come into contact with my memories of my sexual abuse until I was, you know, late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. And, and that's something I think is important because I feel like a lot of this topic can get really confusing 
um, because some people have a memory of it and some people, the memory is repressed. But like you said, Violet, it sounds like it was impacting your sexuality. You used the word polarizing, which is kind of like like a love-hate relationship where sometimes, it sounds like sometimes you were into it and sometimes you would just push the guy away like violently and be like, I don't want it. Like, I don't want that. But you weren't necessarily aware of why. Is that fair? Yes, that's true. And, um, and so for both of you, I'm wondering like when you think back to those like early sexual experiences, I think especially for you, Dawn, since you were aware, what was your experience with, with telling a man about it that you were sleeping with? Did that like come up? Like, how did that come up? Um, I know, you know, Dawn, what you just said was that you didn't tell your first partner because you, I'm assuming you were afraid to, but you did, you did tell him you weren't a virgin. So you wanted to say something, but you didn't want to necessarily say the truth. What, what were your later experiences like when you did sort of tell men what was, what the truth was? Well, I actually did tell him eventually. We went out for almost four years for the entire degree. Like, so when we had sex, it was kind of like we were maybe at the eight month mark of our relationship. Um, um, and eventually, like maybe around like we were really having troubles. We were doing like maybe what is kind of common in high school where we were dating and not dating and off and on and a lot of drama. And, um, uh, I don't know why I got it in my head, but I thought, I kind of thought that if I told him it would bring us closer, cause maybe some of the strain in our relationship was because of this deep, dark secret. And at the time, my sexual abuse seemed to take up a great portion of me that people were not aware of. I was very much present to it. And, um, it took up a lot of how I felt about myself. And so I kind of, got this idea that maybe I had, you know, told girlfriends and they had good responses. So I thought maybe this would bring us closer together. So I actually told this person. And, um, when I did tell him, he did exactly what you should not do. (laughs) Um, which is he called me a slut. And after this, he very much was very emotionally abusive to me. And he, Um, you know, he just would kind of whisper things into my ears and he started to be really strange towards me. And it was kind of like all of these nightmares I had about what people would think of me, like kind of came true. Uh, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm really sorry to hear that. This is, yeah, this is part of why I wanted to do this episode because I feel like, um, obviously there are lots of men and young men that wouldn't respond that way. And I think it's important to bring this stuff into the light because this is one of those things that we aren't talking about just in general and especially sort of like the, the telling someone and then how they respond. Like, can you just like walk us through what that was like for you? Because I'm imagining like it took a lot of courage for you to say something to him in the first place. And then to get that kind of response, like what was happening for you? Oh, I mean, at the, I mean, just, I'm very, you know, I was just crying and I was just devastated, but I internalized it. I didn't really like, it took me years to discover that he had the incorrect response and that it wasn't my fault and it, and that it was 
an awful response to me, um, telling him something that was my like deepest secret. Um, and so at the time, you know, I just said, he just said the exact words that I felt about myself and, um, that, yeah, like I said, it just made it come true to the point of, um, maybe later on having more sexual experiences, um, that I didn't want because of this feeling. Mm. Can you say just a little bit about what you mean by that? Um, I think, I think I was always, because it had happened at such a young age, I was always a little hard at saying no. Um, especially when I felt uncomfortable, like I just kind of did this thing where I would say yes, even though I didn't want to. And, in and, um, I think that after him, I kind of had sexual experiences that at times I was a yes to, but sometimes I would have been a no to, but didn't know how to say no, because there was a part of me that did feel like a slut and felt dirty. So it's, so yeah. So it's almost like you felt like because you were dirty or wrong, like you didn't necessarily like even have the right to say no kind of. Yeah, I guess so. It, you know, it was long ago. So I think there's, yeah, just a lot of damaging thoughts about myself. And I really didn't take it outside of myself until my 20s. What does that mean? Take it outside of yourself? I didn't realize that there were, I mean, that this had happened to me at a very young age. I like, you know, it wasn't until I got a therapist in my 20s that I started to really understand that this wasn't my fault and the reactions I was having and the people like what the reaction he had was an awful reaction. And I started to like, take it outside of it being my fault. It's somehow my fault. Okay. I see. So taking it outside of yourself, realizing like this wasn't all my fault. Yeah. Okay. And, um, Violet, what about you? What were your, because you, um, you said that you, your, the memory started being unrepressed in your late twenties, early thirties. Um, were you in a relationship at that time and how did that affect what was happening in your, in your sex life? Yes, I was in a relationship at the time and ironically it's, you know, it's been said that when our nervous system feels really safe is when sometimes old things come up in order to be processed and healed. But sometimes the process of having something come up then actually creates a sense of not feeling safe in the relationship because to Don's point, you don't know how the person is going to react. So I was in a relationship and we had been dating for a while, I think maybe eight, eight or nine months. And we had already had some challenges with our sex life within that relationship and that I tended to be, I tended to be more dissociated. My libido had totally dropped after we had gotten past maybe the like three to six month mark. Uh, I was definitely dissociating and definitely um, not connecting with him in that way. And so he was starting to feel frustrated. We were having emotional challenges and, and all of that as well. And then when I told him, he said, like, you're crazy. Like, that didn't happen. And I was kind of nervous to tell him anyway, because he would make comments like, oh, I went on a trip with this woman. And she said that she had a past life memory of being abused. And that's just, that's not true. And he was conflating a lot of things together, obviously the past life and the sexual abuse, but there was this kind of denigration on a subtle level of people's truth. And so I was a little hesitant to tell him, but I felt like I had to. And yeah, he didn't believe me. He said that I was crazy. 
I didn't tell him during a sexual encounter. I just told him like when I was in my car, basically. Um, and then when we were making love, I think maybe three weeks later or something like that, I had a really strong traumatic like reenactment come up and then he got very upset at me and he was like, why don't you like sex? What's wrong with you? And, uh, I felt like terrified and also defensive. And I just really didn't even know what was going on, like in my body. So it was a very like bewildering moment to feel like I needed to defend myself, but I had a huge fear of abandonment that because of this thing that he was going to leave. And yeah. Yeah. That's really awful. I mean, I, what both of you are describing as like, you know, telling the first sort of man, like th- these are really bad stories. And, and I'm wondering just because, um, both of you mentioned staying with these men after this conversation. Can you just like, can you just speak to that a little bit? Because I think, um, that feels like really confusing because to me, it's like, they just prove that they're untrustworthy men who aren't, who don't deserve your, your intimacy essentially. And so, but I think this, you know, this does happen pretty frequently. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about, about that, about staying with them after this really awful conversation? I mean, yeah, just, I think I had very low self-esteem about myself and I stayed with someone because I essentially hated myself. (laughs) So I stayed with someone who, you know, treated me like that because I didn't have like the, the self-love that I have for myself now. And like I said, he said exactly what like my inner thoughts were saying about me. So I felt sort of in the wrong, you know, you know, I got later on that I wasn't, but yeah, at the time I, I felt in the wrong and that he was in the right and that he was sort of right to react the way he did, I guess. And now makes me want to throw up. But <laughs> yeah, it makes me want to throw up too. Violet, can you hear your perspective? Yeah, it was interesting because in the time, I, at the time, I think we had formed such what I thought was like a solid bond that I wasn't willing to give up on the relationship yet. I wasn't seeing clearly my own traumas. I wasn't seeing clearly his, you know, denial and and shaming within that. And I had that huge fear of rejection and abandonment. And I had just gotten used to in my life thinking, well, if there's a problem, it's always my fault. So I'm the one who can fix it. And just being hyper responsible, but then letting other people off the hook and always staying too long in relationships and, you know, blaming myself always. And I didn't even think at the time that it was offensive enough for me to leave the relationship. I was just like, oh, wow yeah, I have a problem. You know, I felt a little angry and frustrated with him. I felt defensive. I wasn't sad per se, but I was more just, yeah, angry and kind of dissociated. And my, my burning desire was like, well, we can fix this. Mm. And I think actually, uh, Violet said something that I can relate to, which is the fear of rejection. Like, I think there was, if I'm, if I'm feeling back now, there's this sense of like, if he rejected me, like who else is going to reject me going forward, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. Because especially with something as vulnerable as this, it seems like, yeah, like especially if you were young, it'd be like, oh, well, I guess this is how all men will respond. Or, you know, there's an extrapolation, right, that would happen of a logical, like, this must just be how 
how men think about me. Yes. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is, these are obviously like really terrible stories, (laughs) um, about how men can respond. And, and I also just want to point out that the reason the pair of you are able to speak about this so eloquently and articulately now is I would imagine you've done a lot of work. You've done a lot of personal growth work, a lot of therapy, and you've, you've moved through a lot of this trauma. I mean, you wouldn't, you would never have been able to speak about this in this way around when we're talking about, right? Oh yeah. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so I just want to acknowledge you for being able to be this articulate and to share with us because I just I think you're you're speaking for a lot of people right now that don't that aren't equipped to be able to share in this way um so I want to acknowledge you for that and um just before we move to the stories about when it did go well um you both have mentioned the word dissociated a couple of times and Violet I'm wondering if you could just take us through like, what does it mean when you say dissociated? Like what is a dissociated state? For me, it means feeling really numb and not noticing the sensations of my body and not feeling connected to the other person. Some people, when they dissociate, they almost like view themselves from above or from behind or something. I don't experience that, but I experience feeling kind of dead inside and almost like a lizard. That's like out in the sun. It's like, not that I feel warm, but I'm just inert, you know, I'm just kind of there, maybe moving my eyes, but, but not really moving. Or the flip side of it is to actually be performing for the other person and acting like I'm enjoying it. But really that's just kind of a mask. So I'm still dissociated from like what's actually going on and just, you know, too nervous or too whatever to let the other person see it. So the other thing that I notice is just this kind of a disgust happening simultaneously and especially afterwards and also before I dissociate this sinking feeling of dread like okay we're still having sex I still doesn't feel good I don't want to you know make him feel bad or burst my image of being the perfect girlfriend I don't even want to think about why I'm feeling this way so literally it's almost like my mind just going in and going backwards like it feels like my brain is going backwards into the back of my head and I'm just literally thinking, well, hopefully this won't last too long. Got it. So you're physically present, but you're basically checking out. And um, Violet, you've done a lot of work with with survivors of trauma, and this is a relatively common experience, right? This this tra- something like dissociating it develops as a defense mechanism, right? Because when when we don't have control over something, let's say when we're young sometimes dissociating is the only thing we can do to try to distance ourselves from the experience. And it's not something that we're doing consciously, right? Yeah, it's not conscious. We can become conscious of the dissociation pattern. I mean, there, there would be times when I could catch myself like, okay, I'm checking out. But then there were lots of times where I didn't even realize that I was, that I was checking out until after the fact. So yeah, I was, it wasn't like I was passed out or comatose, but I was just not aware of what was happening. I was distracted. I was checked out. I couldn't have told you what my bodily sensations were. And it was just a state of freeze. Like the nervous system isn't in fight or flight. It's, it's depressed energy in the nervous system. And it's just kind of playing dead. Yeah. 
And for me, it's more the one that she spoke to with the like floaty looking at yourself. Like I seem to float out, dissociate out. And it's kind of like someone is having a life, but it's not exactly me. That's so fascinating. Can you actually see your, do you see your body? Like, do you see? Yeah, it's like a functioning body, but there's some part of me that's detached. That's just like feels out there. I I tend to feel ungrounded and it's not that I can't, like, I don't have a complete freeze or numbing, but it's like, it's just like the feelings don't feel exactly like mine. It's like having two different kind of lives going on, but, but you're, I'm aware it's just, there's not as much as I feel in my body now, like I can feel the fullness and the wholeness. And before it's kind of like I was viewing myself having a life. Okay. So in terms of, I think this is important because I just want to, um, sort of review the dissociated thing because, you know, we're talking about it from your perspective, right. From the woman's perspective. But when, when you, when you have the experience of dissociating or feeling dissociated, do you think that your partner can tell? I personally don't think so. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, there were plenty of partners that I was dissociated from that I think they were also in their own fantasy would be my presumption that they were maybe in a porn fantasy or maybe they were just focused on themselves and weren't really attuned to what was going on with me. Or maybe they could tell I wasn't fully there, but they they didn't know what to say. I mean, at the time in my life, I was also not very fully expressed as a person. I was kind of muted and flat and um, more quiet. So it might not have seemed that different <laughs> than my normal. Yeah, for me, I think, and I think Violet actually said something like, I think that it was kind of like always like kind of a little bit pretending for me, especially in my earlier years. Um, so I don't, I don't think anyone could tell that I was dissociating. Okay. Um, all right. So we've talked about what not to say <laughs> and how not to respond. Um, and now I'm wondering if you two have had experiences of disclosing and having it go well. And I want to know what, what is it that the men said and what were they, what did they do that, that worked for you that had it feel like a positive experience sharing about this? Riley, do you want to go I've had, yeah, I've had some experiences where the men were really supportive. I chose not to tell a lot of my partners my current partner, my husband, I decided to just take a risk and be vulnerable with him and tell him kind of from the get-go. I mean, not, I don't think the first date or something, but within the first maybe five or six dates, I definitely told him. Whereas with other partners, I was like, let me just see if I can make it and not have to like make it past, um, I don't know, whatever mythical point. So there's two partners that I told my husband and another person. And the other person was like, oh, okay. That happens to a lot of people. It's no big deal. Like I'm here for you. He kind of minimized it, but not in a way that I felt bad. It was more like, oh, okay. I'm normal. This happens. He's not freaked out by it. Like he doesn't think it's a big deal. And at that point in my healing journey, that was okay for me. I didn't need him to like drop in super deep or anything with me. And then with Jason, he was just really attentive. He was listening He was like, oh, wow, you know, it sounds like that was really tough for you. Tell me more. And um, 
he purposely said, you know, if you're ever not feeling into it, I always want to know. Like, I don't want you ever performing for me. I don't want to feel that shame of like forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. Um, please always tell me. So we made an agreement really early in our relationship just to be totally transparent about what was going on with us. And that created a lot of relief for me. Yeah. I just want to highlight what you just said, because it sounds like part of what he was attuned to was what happened to you, A, but B, how that was happening now, meaning like how that could possibly impact the sex that you're having now. And he created some safety by saying like, listen, if that ever comes up, if there's ever something that makes you feel uncomfortable or you don't want to do, I want to know. I want you to tell me if there's anything that you don't want to do or if something doesn't feel good. So he didn't wait for you to say, Hey, you know, it'd be really great if you know what I mean? Like he didn't wait for you to tell him he created a sort of space for you to feel like you could. And it, and it sounds like what you said was like, that made you feel relieved. Yes. Because it took away the judgment. Okay. Yeah. Say a little more about what that relief was like. It was a sense that it was going to be okay if I said, hey, I'm feeling triggered and I I don't want to have sex right now. Because what I realized is a lot of the times when I was dissociating, I kind of knew before we even started having intercourse when we were just making out or I could feel the other person's sexual energy. There was a part of me that was like, no, I don't feel like it or I'm not ready or I feel triggered by this. But I would just push past that in the attempt to please the other person and to cover up my own shame about what was going on. And I did that less and less the further I got in my healing journey. But it was just really nice to have a partner say, don't ever do this just for me. Please always tell me what's going on. And then I didn't feel like, okay, well, if I tell him what's going on, I'm going to be left. I'm going to be judged. or I'm going to be shamed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Dawn, have you had, what was your experience? Um, so mine is pretty similar um, to Violet's, but I after having that experience, I had a couple of other, um, really close boyfriends. And I even at one point got really close to telling one, but because of what had happened, I didn't tell another man up until my fiance that I have now. Um, I just, I just feared that response so much. Um, and I kind of like in a way tested the water where I told a really good friend of mine in college, who was a, a a girl and she kind of had a weird response where she was like, Oh, I'm, I don't know how to handle that. <laughs> and so even that, and I guess I told her cause we were kind of all friends and I was like, well, if she reacts well, maybe the person I'm dating will react well. And because she kind of really didn't, I was like, okay, I'm just like not going to tell people this thing about me. Um, but then when I started dating my now fiance, it was, I totally felt different about him. And I just felt like we were going down this path, you know, of being married. And I didn't want to feel like I had to not tell him stuff. And similarly, I want, I had grown up on my path and I didn't want to hide when sometimes I didn't feel like having sex or, you know, um, you know, wasn't able to do that. I didn't want to have to hide this piece anymore. It was, and I wanted it to be loved and accepted. And if someone wasn't going to do that, I, I wanted to know kind of early on. So I told him pretty early on in our relationship. I'm not quite sure, but I want to say it was maybe about three weeks or a month into our relationship. And he responded so well that I might cry <laughs> over this, but um, he just really looked at me and he was like, 
I'm so sorry that happened to you. He's like, and I was crying and I was like, I don't know if this means you're not going to like me. And I get in and he's like, I love you even more. And, you know, over time, not maybe not in that reaction, but over time, he's definitely like, there's sometimes when, especially in the beginning of our relationship, um, when I would just have to stop like mid sex and I would have to tell him like, what happens for me is my abuser's name comes in my mind. And I don't know why it's happened less and less after like lots of therapy and stuff, but it would really like mess up the mood for me. And so I would have to stop. And he just always held me. And if I had to cry or anything, he was always just there for me, letting me know everything was acceptable and okay. Mm, I really love that. I really love that part about like everything is acceptable. Like Mm -hmm. there's nothing that isn't going to be, that isn't going to be accepted. There's nothing that you could do or say that was going to be like too much or um, scary or overwhelming or anything. Like, I really love that. Like whatever happens, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. To this very day. And I think, um, I just want to go back to what you said, because I think that's important of the, the young woman that you told who reacted poorly and was like, Oh God, that's like overwhelming. I don't really know what to do with that. Um, I, I, I suspect that there are people, lots of people like that, where it's not that they don't want to react well, they do like still care about you and everything, but they're sort of like their system gets flooded and they're like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do with this information. Um, so I just want to sort of break it down and say like, like for the two of you, if you're, if you're telling someone about this, what is the ideal response? What do you want to hear from them in terms of of their response? I think for me, it just depended on the different stage of my journey. I mean, baseline, always just understanding and acceptance, even if they don't totally understand because they didn't have the experience maybe they don't have empathy for it but at least understanding that I'm not able to show up for them always the way that they want in this part and it doesn't make me bad or wrong so like no judgment no shame a level of acceptance would be great I think there were times in the earlier parts of my healing process where I really wanted someone to hold me and you know kiss my cheek and be like oh it's gonna be okay I'm so sorry and like provide a lot of nurturing. And then there were times when it was like, okay, I just want to be acknowledged that I'm normal and it's okay. And it's not going to ruin anything like the other boyfriend. And then I thought it was great when Jason was like, yeah, you can always tell me, I always want to know. Um, I never want you to do something you don't feel comfortable with and we can get through this. Love that. Thank you. Yeah. And I would agree. Um, I think there's a sense of love definitely in the the beginning that I was definitely wanting was just like love and acceptance and I, as well understanding. And there's so much of me that just doesn't want to be judged. Like it's somehow my fault, the judgments or how I'm somehow different now um, in the eyes of the person. I think that's like my baseline is just some, yeah, some care and understanding. Um, I don't think right now I as much need like, yeah, I just need someone to just look at me like a human being and this event happened and mostly like, it's not my fault. It happened when I was two. So there's just some respect that this is an event that, you know, that I, I couldn't have really prevented at the time and it doesn't make me a different human 
than anyone else. Yeah, especially since that early boyfriend basically did that. I mean, he told you that you were a slut and that you that it was your fault, essentially. So in terms of like positive responses, what I'm hearing is like some level of, I'm really sorry that happened to you. And if it's someone you're, that you're sleeping with, like, I still want to be with you. I still like you. I still love you. I'm right here. Instead of sort of the like sense of like, this was your fault or judgment or shaming or something like that. Because um, I think that's something that can get lost if, you know, you haven't had the experience yourself is like, like Don, I love what you said of like, I still want to be seen as a person. Like this thing happened and I'm still a person. It doesn't mean something about me um, in terms of like, it doesn't, you know, I don't want it to change how you see me. Yes, definitely. Anything to add to that, Violet? Yeah, I just wanted to add that I also was carrying some shame or fear that they would label me as someone who was messed up or someone who wasn't marriage material or all of those things. And not that it's a man's responsibility in the moment to be like, it's okay, I will never leave you or something like that. But I think that um, a sense of normalcy, like Don was saying, that you're still a human and not them getting in their mind like, oh, well, what does this mean about our relationship? Are you always going to have issues with sex? Like, it's really nice when they can just be present and not interpret it in terms of them and what it means for them as much as they can just hold space for me, especially if it's coming up when you're in the act. Because I think it's one thing to share it with someone when you're having a cup of coffee and get their response. But both people's nervous systems are really amped up if you're both literally naked and, and having sex. And so especially if it's coming up in the moment for a man to just be present and stop and make eye contact and not take it personally. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I also really love what you said about how Jason responded in terms of being sensitive to like, hey, listen, if anything ever comes up that triggers you, like, I want to know about it. You know, I don't ever want you to feel like there's anything in sex that you have to do or that you feel like if you're feeling uncomfortable when we're doing something, like, please tell me, I want to know. I really want this to feel safe for you because it's one thing to be like, I'm sorry that happened. And, you know, I still, I still like really like you. I still find you attractive. I, you know, sort of the, the reassurance thing. It's another to be sensitive to the fact that this could impact and likely will impact the sex now and to kind of create a safe space around that. Like that's a, that's a next level thing to do. Um, especially like you said, Violet, if it comes up while you're having sex and I'm sure for a lot of people it does because that's, you know, it's triggering a lot of the same sensations. So it's, you know, it's likely probably that a lot of, this is where a lot of people are having the first conversation about it. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to highlight that as another way, if you're a man in a relationship with a woman and she's telling you about something like this, be sensitive to the fact that like, you know, it would be really helpful for you to say like, Hey, I I always want to know if something's happening with our sex that makes you feel uncomfortable. Cause I don't want that. Like, I really want this to feel good for you and to feel safe for you. So I'd like to be on your team about that. Yes. And I, I want to add one more thing, which is that I think it was easier for Jason to hold that space for me, knowing that I was and had been doing work on it. I've talked with men who have been with women who are survivors and they're not doing their work on it. 
And as much as they want to hold space, there's just a continual triggering and a lot of emotion involved and things coming up. So I say this not because I'm blaming the victims at all, and it's not your fault if something like this happened to you, but it is an opportunity for you to get somatic healing and support um, so that your partner trusts, okay, this is a challenge for us. It's going to come up sometimes. I need to hold space. I'm going to hold space. I still love you. And wow, okay, I'm really proud of you for doing your work because that way I know that we're both we're both putting in what it takes to get through this. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, I just want to touch on that briefly in terms of, you know, how did you move through this? How, you know, what was a little bit of like, what do you feel like was the most significant part of your process? Um, and Violet, I would love for you to speak to that briefly because I know then you have to go. And Dawn, I'm going to keep you on to talk to talk to that. Okay. Okay, perfect. So yeah, my process was layered. A lot of it was the somatic therapy that I did for five or six years. And then the other part of it was the own personal practice that I did when I wasn't with my therapist, which was work with the jade egg and a glass dildo and cervical, you know, wand and some de-armoring that I was doing. So this was my own, you know, journey but it was helpful because then I wasn't reliant on my therapist. And even though my therapist was amazing, she clearly wasn't with me when I was in a state of arousal. So I could do a lot of the release of the energetic charge in my own personal practice. And that was really, really helpful. Yeah. And I think I might have you back on the podcast to speak to that more because we don't have enough time to go into it today, but I'm really, I'm inspired by sort of sharing more, um, about how to help people through this because the numbers are just so high. Um, yes. So I'm going to have you back on to talk about that. But the the short version is somatic therapy and then your own sort of personal somatic therapies, including the jade egg and cervical wand and things like that, which we'll get into in another episode. Yes. And just to add one more thing is that it was my own personal practice, but I was doing it with support, obviously, and tools from mentors. And so it's not just, oh, order a jade egg online and then go have fun. Like you should definitely get the support of a mentor or someone who's really well-versed in these tools and can understand the pattern and hold space for you if something comes up. Yeah, really good point. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Violet. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you, Violet. Okay. Um, so yeah, Don, would you just share a little bit about how you've moved through this um, and continue to with such grace, I might add? Um, thanks. Um, I think uh, definitely the same thing. I have a somatic therapist as well. Um, but I think for me, it was starting to realize, to just be honest with myself that this was affecting my sex life, that this was actually, I think I had a thing were it was eating up my brain space, but I wasn't being honest that, of course, this was affecting my sex life. Um, because it took me so long to come to terms with the, the traumatic response I had. Um, it was first just being like, okay, I want to be a sexually vibrant person. I want to enjoy sex for me. And that happened when I got my partner that I have now, which was like, I want to enjoy sex and I don't want this to be I don't want this to be part of my story or my whole story. That's like, Oh man, you know, coming up all the time. So I think I started to do a lot of just like pleasurable work and 
enjoying the pleasurable things um, and also talking to my therapist about it. And a big part of my sexual discovery and release has been uh, uh, Jaya's work, working with Jaya as um, J-A-I-Y-A. People can check her out. And really just like knowing nothing is wrong, everything's okay. And I'm completely um, able to have a vibrant sex life. There was like some part of me that always felt like sex would be not pleasurable. And now it's really pleasurable. Yeah. I think what you just said is really important because, um, that's part of why I find you and Violet so, um, inspiring is because you're both like, you know, late twenties into your thirties and you've done a lot of, um, somatic therapy and personal growth work. Um, and it's working, it's working. Like not only are you having a a great sex life, both of you, but you're also in committed relationships. Like you're engaged and Violet is married. And I think there, you know, I used to work with uh, survivors of sexual abuse for my job. And it seems like for a lot of people, there's this sort of belief, like you were speaking to of feeling dirty or feeling bad or somehow damaged and that that can go along with the feeling of like, no one will ever want me, or this just won't be a part of my life that works. Um, or like you said, the denial part of like, I'm not really going to look at this. It's not really affecting me. I don't really want to talk about it. Um, and I feel like you two are such an incredible example of people who've, you know, done the, the therapy work and it's, and it's helping, like, it's actually, you know, helping you move through it so that, like you said, it's, it's not, it doesn't define your sex life. It doesn't define your life. It's something that's part of your story, but it doesn't dominate your story. Yeah. And I, and I just know how far I've come because it's like actually taking the effort to like go back into certain things that you're asking. And, and like before I feel like definitely when I first told you, you know, it was this like crying moment, you know, of like telling you this deep thing. And now I'm just like, okay, I remember that story, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. And I guess I'm giving myself a little pat on the back because it really is something that's become sort of minor when it used to be so major for me. Yeah. I love that. I really love that. And I also think it's cool because since you are a therapist in training, um, you know, I'm imagining that this is going to be part of your therapeutic work. And as we start to wrap up the episode, um, I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit to, let's say there's like listeners out there that are kind of towards the beginning of the journey. Um, and just to say this explicitly, um, we're not just talking about women. Men are also survivors of sexual abuse. Lots of them, one in three women and one in six men are survivors of sexual abuse. And so this isn't just women. We're focusing on women because this is a podcast for men who want to get better with women. So that's the stance we're taking in this one, but just to say that, you know, aloud. Um, so I'm just wondering as a therapist in training, like what would you tell those people that are sort of just starting out on the, the personal growth journey of like, okay, maybe this is something that I should address. I think something I say, and I actually have people, I haven't had clients yet, but I actually have people who come to me, both you're correct. uh, uh, Men and women throughout my life who somehow seek my counsel in this area by either just telling me they don't know my story or by knowing my story and wanting, you know, um, 
appear in that, that same position as them. And I think one of the first things I say, and, and what we do talk about in my therapy classes is a lot of trauma happens, yes, around the event, but also bound around the reaction, which we're talking about. And I think one thing that I vocalize is that there's two abuses that happen that can often happen. It's the actual abuse, and then it's the abuse from all the responses. And I say this because I, you know, I haven't had an experience yet that someone hasn't told me that has a bad reaction. And for them just to recognize that they're having a common experience and again, taking it away from making it internalizing that it's them, that they're dirty, they're bad. This is all, you know, there's all, it's all about them, that it's actually quite common and that it's, and that these responses they're having is just someone else's stuff, you know, and it's not, it's not about them being dirty or wrong or bad or anything like that. So I think that's the first thing in the beginning that I really had to understand is that. This was uh, not your fault. Yeah, this wasn't my fault. That's the first thing you got to come to terms with. And then another thing is, again, what, you know, Violet talked to, which is that this is like, this is not your fault. This is not your fault is the first thing. And the second thing is, is that your responsibility is to get help is it's really, I think it's impossible to do this without help, without therapy. Somatic therapy is the best. I recommend it, but it's really impossible. You know, you have mentors or groups or anything that you can get books, anything, listening to this podcast, great step, you know, because you're really going to need companions and, and people in the, in the field to help you work through all of this trauma. You just really can't do it on your own. And when I really started to come out in my twenties to therapy and really looking at this and talking about this and making this a, a top priority is when things started to change. I really love that. I like that word companions on the journey because I, so I have another friend. Um, I'm often the person that people tell about this and anyone who's listening that needs someone to tell, I am available. Absolutely. Um, but one of my other friends um, in another city told me about it. And I was really proud of her because she took steps to find find a group, find a support group. Um, and you'd think those would be easier to find. She actually had kind of a hard time and she was in a major city, but she did end up finding a group. So kind of like you said, Don, there's a lot of different ways to get support doesn't have to look like, um, you know, $150 an hour psychotherapist. There are sliding scale clinics. There are places you can look at like women's clinics. Um, and sometimes women's clinics will have therapists for men too. Don't discount it just because it's a women's clinic. Um, so there's a lot of ways to do it and support groups. And like you said, books, like all of that stuff. Um, but what I heard the loudest in what you said just now was when you started to make getting that help a priority. Like, this is important in my life. This isn't just something I'm going to like put off or put away or put in the corner, but like, I'm going to bring this out towards like the front of what's important right now. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely what's helped me. And it's also what made it that part of making it priority was that I didn't want it to be my whole life. And that's really when the work started to gain. And that's, I think that's around the, you know, the, as we advance more is when you start being like, this is only a part of me. This is only a part of me. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I think the, the only thing I would add to that too, is, um, if you are a man or you are, um, a support system for someone with major trauma, you might need support too. <laughs> like it would be good for you to have 
a mentor, a counselor, someone that you're talking to, um, you don't have to bear that whole, that whole burden alone either. Um, I think, like you said, Don, a lot of the power of secrets is that they stay secret. Um, so when we're able to talk to other people about them, some of that burden starts to lift. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll advocate for that saying that that's what I recommended for my partner and he has a mentor and we have a couples therapist. So yes, support all around. And he goes to a men's group and I don't know what he talks about there, but I hope it's some of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Cool. Okay. So um, I think we're going to start to wrap there. Um, I just want to say thank you again for sharing your story and for being so open and really, honestly, I sort of think of you as a light in the world, you and Violet and all of the other survivors who are getting help and moving through it. And because I I think it's kind of like a beacon, like a lighthouse or something of like, oh my God, it is possible to get better and to move through it and to have a really awesome sex and love life as a big part of your life. So I want to say just really thank you for speaking about it for the men who are listening and also for the women. Um, I imagine this is the kind of episode that will get shared with people. So I just want to thank you for everything that you've done to get to this place now. Well, thank you. You're also part of my journey and my support. So thank you for being there for all of us as well. Um, I also want to say that just as this has been a lifetime, like I said, this is my twenties. It happened when I too, I think a lot of people, I just, I hope one, sometimes when I talk to people, they feel like they have to do it all now. And it is really a process. And even as I'm talking here, you know, at times there are things that come up again. So, um, it's very like, it's, it's really minimal at this point, but I just want people to know that like, take it slowly and, and men, you know, if you ha- have had a bad response in the past, like know that you can change and, and have a better response next time, you know, like everyone needs to be slow and compassionate and love each other. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of Dear Men. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out, we would love to hear from you. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Dear Men Podcast. That's at Dear Men Podcast. Or Facebook, we have a group, Dear Men Podcast. We also have an email address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the Big Sexy Dataset, the community of people who regularly respond to the surveys that we talk about on this podcast, just email us at that address, dearmenpodcast at gmail.com, and we will set you up. Have a sexy day.